listening to the Ones Ready Podcast, a team of Air Force Special Operators forged in combat with over 70 years of combined operational experience as well as a decade of selection instructor experience. If you're tired of settling and you want to do something you truly believe in, you're in the right place. Now here's your host, PJ team leader, jujitsu lover, meme enthusiast, and dad joke aficionado. Aaron Love. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are in the team room once again. You've got myself, Brian, and our guest for this week, Master Sergeant Justin Pruitt. He's a combat aviation advisor. You guys have asked time and time again, what are they? Why don't we know more about them? How do we get into that career field? Well, as always, we listen to you, and here we go. We're about to give you everything that you absolutely have needed to know about becoming a combat aviation advisor in the Air Force Special Operation Commands. No acronyms this week. That's a goal, and I'm going to mess that up right away. As always, we want to start off with gratitude and just say thank you very much. We appreciate the likes, the follows, the comments, you engaging on all of the social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is, shout us out at once ready. Come let us know that we're doing the right thing or tell us, hey, you guys are really screwing this up. You're doing it the wrong way. We want to hear more of this because we love that input as well. So again, thank you for all that we do. Check us out anywhere that you can follow us. As always, we have some partners that have been with us the entire time. There's nobody that comes to mind more than Alpha Brew Coffee. They've been with us literally since we started the podcast. They're awesome over there. So go check them out, alphabrewcoffee.com. You can enter the promo code ONESREADY at anything that you want to buy off the site, whether it be one of the new hypercolor kind of change color t-shirts, whether it's one of the new roasts that they just put out. They just put out a dark roast, the first blood type dark roast fantastic so go check them out alphabrewcoffee.com use the code ones ready at checkout for anything you want you get a good discount off of there support this military uh leo uh so veteran and, and leo owned and operated business they're awesome over there so we love them i personally use it and and even give it out as gifts when my friends want to venture into that nerdy coffee world so go check them out alphabrewcoffee.com use your code ones ready at checkout all right justin welcome my friend how are you Good, man. How are you? Man, I, I am perfect. It is good to see you. We were talking before we got on the podcast, but we've known each other for, for decades now, um, and we've maintained a, a close relationship over over at Shadow Spear, and it took me a while to finally finally wear you down and, and come on the Ones Ready podcast. You are uh, not the only uh, combat aviation advisor I know, but you're the best one. So welcome to the team room, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, you know, just to, to throw out a quick disclaimer... Um, I'm here on my own time as a, as a private citizen and anything I throw out here are pretty much the rantings of a madman and they are not the official position of the United States Air Force or the United States government. Uh, thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a really kind of niche job in a very small community. So not a lot of folks know about us, um, you know, and, and hopefully this will help out with our recruiting efforts. Yeah, that's exactly why we're here is to get people that information and get the right people going towards the right jobs. And, you know, we're, we're happy to help. So why don't you just tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit about yourself, a little about a little bit about your Air Force career and, and how you came to be a combat aviation advisor. Sure. Um, so buckle up. It's kind of a, a long and winding story. Um, you know, I, I graduated high school in 95 and uh, went straight into the Marine Corps. Um, it's 17 years old. So came in as a uh, as an infantryman pretty quickly figured out that that wasn't really where I wanted to be you know it, it wasn't a good fit for me um, so I, I kind of started looking around for the for the next best thing you know or, or where I felt like I might be a good fit and the uh, the scout sniper platoon happened to be having a uh, MDoc 
So I went and did that, and I got picked up for the uh, the stay platoon, the scout sniper platoon. And, uh, you know, I spent about three years there. Loved that, uh, you know, but in the, in the Marine Corps, at least back in the 90s, at a certain point in your career, you come up against what's called a B-billet. And uh, a B-billet is when they require you to go off to be either a drill instructor or a recruiter. And, uh, you know, that was about the time that it was decision point, either re-enlist or, or get out. Sure. And I and I knew I really didn't want to be a drill instructor or a recruiter. So, you know, I kind of elected to, to vote with my feet and, uh, and, and I got out. Um, and then reality really set in, uh, you know, going into the Marine Corps straight out of high school, again, at 17 and then out, um, you know, I really wasn't prepared for civilian life and getting out as a scout sniper in the, in the late nineties, I didn't exactly have a marketable skill set. Uh, so, you know, I kind of had a, had a rough go of it as a civilian. Um, I wound up at a trucking company and, uh, when September 11th happened, I was still in my inactive reserve commitment. And, uh, you know, I called up the, the Marine uh, reserve support command and volunteered to mobilize as a, uh, as an IMA. They called me back and, uh, essentially they told me I was going to be augmenting the military police at Quantico, which is not exactly what I was trying to get after by coming back. Um, at this point in time, I was married. My wife was active duty air force. So I elected to, to kind of pivot, you know, that, that's kind of a common theme. Um, so I pivoted and decided to join the air force and, um, you know, not to inflate y'all's egos, but I was trying to go special tactics and uh, when your recruiter tells you guys that there's a waiver for everything, that's not exactly accurate. <laughs> so the issue I ran up against was I can't pass a color vision test. Um, and the Air Force would not waive that. So it took a while. Um, they eventually offered me, uh, back then it was called life support. They said, hey, we'll, we'll bring you in as a senior airman. We're going to give you this specialty of life support. Um, take it or leave it. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the best opportunity I had, you know, available to me at that point. Did, did you have any idea what life support was? Were you just taking no. any job that they were giving you? Yeah, I, I was going to, my, my intent was to take anything they offered me. And then I knew at the three year mark, I could try to retrain. Um, you know, so I came in, I was a life support apprentice at, uh, at Tinker Air Force Base supporting AWACS. And, um, you know, again, I found myself in a position where it's like, man, this isn't really what I want to be doing. Uh, when that three-year mark came up, I tried to retrain in a special tactic again. Pretty quickly, the flight surgeon slapped me down and said, no, there's no color vision waivers. Uh, and that, that's about the time I first kind of became aware of the, the combat aviation advisor community. And, uh, you know, just like now, there wasn't a whole lot of information available. Um, so it was time to, to pivot again and just kind of commit to something and see where it took me. So um, that's, that's two times in a row that you were just like, life support? I, I don't know. Sure. And then combat aviation yeah. advisor? Sure. I don't know. Let's, let's figure it out. Yeah. Right. Bold, bold move. Kyle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, this strategy worked out for me. There you go. Um, 
So since 2007, I've been assigned to the, uh, the six special operations at the squadron as a, uh, as a combat aviation advisor. Um, you know, and, and it's something that, uh, typically guys stick around for four or five years. Um, clearly I've been there for much longer than that. Um, and, and I think just my story up to this point kind of shows you if I don't like what's going on, I'm going to pivot and find something else. So the, the fact that, that I've stayed in this community as long as I have should tell you something. Yeah. So we know that you liked it better than the scout sniper and better than AFE or uh, life support so far. And obviously yeah. you stayed there for a while. So there has to be something <laughs> to this thing, um, yeah. which, you know, a lot of us really aren't even exposed. I honestly didn't even know about it until after I became a PA and they're like, Oh, you can, now that you're a PA, you can go over there and uh, wear that Brown beret and stuff. So let's get into a little bit about uh, exactly what combat aviation advisors do and kind of where they started. I know it's a young career field uh, comparatively to some of the other ones. And I think pararescue is as well. Um, so the air force is taking all these initiatives and creating mission sets out of different activities that, you know, specifically you guys are doing and you guys have a specific unit. There's not like a, a ton of units or anything like that for you guys. So tell us a little bit about um, specifically how it started and what your guys' mission is over there at the six. Sure. So the, uh, the, the history of kind of the aviation advising mission set really kind of it, it dates back to the, the China, Burma, India theater or campaign during World War II. Um, you know, the, the squadron initially stood up in 1944 as part of the first air commando group. Uh, and then the, the most direct lineage to the, to the mission set ties back to Operation Water Pump during the Vietnam War. Uh, Operation Water Pump, what that was, is where American airmen were working in uh, Laos and Thailand to train Lao, uh, Hmong, and Thai airmen to fly the T-28 in a close air support role and also to conduct and coordinate airstrikes in, in support of ground troops. Um, you know, the, the present day six SOS stood up in 1994, and that was a culmination of several studies and, and test deployments, kind of, you know, uh, proof of concept deployments that occurred between 1991 and 1994. Um, and that pretty much leads us to today. Um, the, the primary mission sets for the, for the unit or for the combat aviation advisor community are security force assistance, foreign internal defense, and unconventional warfare. Um, you know, th those are the things that, that we've been doing since 1994. Yeah. There's, okay. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Brian. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say there's, there, there's a lot of buzzwords in there that, that I'm, you know, uh, really keying up on in there. So, um, how, how did you move, how did they, you know, take the sixth and initially like deploy that? Cause they, they literally made that capability from, from zero. Um, and that was, you know, you got there just shortly after it was, wasn't even a decade old when you got there. Right. Right. So, you know, there, there's, we talk through this, I think your, your viewers and your listeners are going to seeing and hearing a lot of similarities between what we're doing as combat aviation advisors and how we deploy and, and execute our missions and how the army special forces use their ODAs. And that's not coincidental. Um, you know, the, the closest thing, the closest analog that 
our predecessors had to look at in order to build out this aviation for an internal defense mission set was the Army Special Forces. You know, these guys have been doing it pretty much since their inception. That's their main mission. Um, so it was pretty easy to steal some pages from their playbook and then kind of put that aviation mindset on top of that. So, like I said, those the similarities, there, there's no, it's, it's, it's definitely not coincidental. Um, you know, and, and even when we go down range, we work shoulder to shoulder with those guys quite a bit. Sweet. <laughs> we were just waiting for the pass off. We didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, so can you tell us any stories about, about anything that you've done before? Uh, yeah. So, you know, my personal experience, um, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Philippines. Um, and, you know, we years ago when we were still involved in the rotary wing mission, that, that mission has since been moved over to the army. Um, we would go to the Philippines, partner up with those guys and help them with their, their Hueys and build, uh, insertion and extraction capabilities, uh, be it on MVG or via rappel, fast rope and, and rope ladder, things like that. Um, but, but one of the things that I think was one of our greatest achievements when we were still doing the rotary wing stuff was we built a tactical flight medic program. So oh, wow. what, the okay. tac- what the TFMs were or are is kind of like PJ Light. So these guys have some, uh, you know, some kind of battlefield medical skills, you know, so, so a little bit of that TCCC, right, tactical combat casualty care. Um, but they already had a foundation in uh, like the self-aid buddy care and a, and a little bit of clinical medicine, right? So we took those guys, we layered on some tactical skills, we layered on some care and flight type skills. So what that what that really generated was in their ground forces there was always a hesitancy to pursue the enemy you know close with and, and destroy the enemy right of course um, yeah because if, if you feel like nobody's going to come get you if you're in trouble that that is a that is a huge you know hit to morale that's one of the, my favorite things about being a pj is you know um and i didn't realize it until i was a pj for for a couple of years i had a, a team sergeant look at me one time and go hey you know why you know why airplanes can fly because they know if they go down that we're going to come get them no matter what. That's our whole mission is, is to enable those forces. And it works the same for the ground. So I, I can see how that'd be a huge step for, you know, a, a partner, a partner force to be able to go, Hey, if you do get hurt, if you are in trouble, there is somebody coming to get you. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, that, that was really a, a game changer in their, you know, their foreign internal defense issues. So, you know, the, the Philippines, it's, it's no secret. They've, they've had some insurgency issues going on. Um, so kind of building that confidence in their ground forces and then, you know, based upon a capability that, that we were able to build with their aviation forces, that enabled them to get after these issues a little bit more aggressively than they had in the past. Yeah. Outstanding. And you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So foreign internal defense, that's a term that we're using a lot in ST when we talk about global access, strike, recovery, when we're talking about building those those partner capabilities and, and stuff like that. We throw around a whole bunch of acronyms, which 
I think I'm doing pretty well on trying to stay away from TLAs, those three letter acronyms. Can you tell us, like, just explain what, what is FID? So, you know, you, we had um, Sean Buck Rogers on and he talked about unconventional warfare and he talked about foreign internal defense, which is FID. Can you tell us, you know, from, from an airman's perspective, what is FID? So, so I'll kind of touch on all three of the mission sets that we really get after. So, and, and kind of going big to small. So security force assistance is, is one of the, the, the things that we probably do most frequently. So what security force assistance is, is from a combat aviation advisor standpoint, we're going to go to a foreign country and we are going to assist their security apparatus, be it, uh, you know, law enforcement. Typically it's the military. It's, it's very, very rare that we're working with uh, law enforcement. Um, but we're going to build their capabilities and their capacity to get after potential threats. Okay. Right. Um, when you kind of shift into the foreign internal defense mode, the things that we're doing as CAAs are pretty much the same, but what has changed is the environment, right? So typically what, what has caused us to be in that FID, that foreign internal defense mode is now there is a threat. Right. There's lawlessness, terrorism, subversion, things like that. Um, and, and we are helping enable our partners to get after those issues. Right. Um, and then when you switch into unconventional warfare, you're, you're kind of flipping that fit equation on its head. to where we're, we're probably working with uh, like a proxy force or maybe a non-state actor to get after a strategic objective. Does that make sense? I, I have no idea what you, you just blacked out. It was like the perfect, <laughs> that was the most, yeah. that's a, those are, those are three huge things. Like, I, I mean, you know, as, as well as I do there, the military, um, put you through, you know, professional military education. I've taken specific courses on learning all these things. And each one of the things that you just nailed down was a, its own block. I mean, it was its own, you know, two, yeah. two weeks worth of school. So it's awesome. Thanks for, thanks for describing that for everybody out there. Yeah, we're trying to stay away from the doctrinal definitions. I don't want to put anybody to sleep. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, and exactly. Um, so for myself and for all the listeners, it sounds like um, obviously you're talking about getting your ideas and the things that uh, the Success OS does from some of the things that were going on way back when in the 40s and then also from the special forces units that were doing some of the similar things. Um, I think it's also interesting, you know, the amalgamation of different career fields that are in this uh, whole uh, squadron. So it's not like you're just a Green Beret, you're not just a, you know, like you were saying, the uh, medical experts that were the PJ lights and that kind of thing. There's a bunch of different people from different career fields. And like I was mentioning before, PAs, IDMTs, a bunch of other people that come from different career fields are allowed to go in there. So can you break that down for everyone else? Like, I know there's a bunch of, like I said, a bunch of career fields that can go in there, but can a person come up off the street and actually go into the success OS or do they have to figure out which career field is eligible for that and then go into the squadron or how does that work? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely not an entry level job. So it's, it's not, not a, uh, so, all right, where to start. So it's not an AFSC, right? Combat aviation advisor is not its own career field per se. That said, it is a special duty and we do have a special duty identifier, right? So all air advisors in the Air Force, 
when you hit certain milestones, you get assigned this SDI. Uh, for combat aviation advisors, it, it's 8 Lima 7. And once you become a team sergeant in the combat aviation advisor community, it's 8 Lima 8. So the way that works is that does not become your primary AFSC. Okay. Whatever your AFSC is, when we bring you into the unit, so you, you have to have already been in the Air Force, gotten an AFSC and achieved a, a seven level in that AFSC. We're going to bring you into the unit. We're going to put you through the mission qualification course. And then we're going to slap that eight Lima, whatever special duty identifier on you. So uh, the, the easiest way to explain it is when you're competing for promotion and you're, you're looking at your career development, if you're going to go into the, the senior NCO tiers and try to make chief, um, you need to be looking at whatever your primary AFSC is. So me as, a, as an aircrew flight equipment technician, all the boxes I need to check are the ones that you would need to check for an aircrew flight equ equipment technician to get promoted, right? Um, that 8 Lima special duty identifier, you're going to get exposed to a lot of unique things that are going to look really good on your EPRs, but they're not necessarily the things that are going to get you promoted. Um, you know, that the SDI is something that the Air Force can use as a force management tool so that when your time as a combat aviation advisor is up, you know, like I said, typically four to five years, and you go back out into the wider Air Force, at a certain point, the Air Force can look at you and say, okay, this guy has experience as an advisor. Let's bring him back into the community as uh, you know, a senior enlisted advisor or an op soup for another advisory organization. So, like I said, it's kind of a force management tracking tool. Um, that's relatively recent. It's a great thing that we didn't have before. Um, prior to that, we were just, you know, 14 different enlisted AFSCs and six different officer AFSCs that were doing weird stuff. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't really have anything in our personnel file to explain why we were doing the things that we were doing yeah, sure. when it came time for the promotion boards to look at us. Okay. So pretty much what I'm, what I'm gathering from this is the kind of person that is uh, pretty decent at public speaking and is motivated to obviously travel a lot. You guys are going to be doing a lot of that. Um, and then what other traits do you think are kind of, you know, preferred for a person that wants to go into combat aviation advisor and what kind of things would you expect from a person coming up into that role? So really what, what we're looking for are very well-rounded individuals, right? So you do need to be fit, right? You definitely need to be intelligent and, and well-spoken. Um, you really need to be a subject matter expert in your AFSC because once you come to the unit, you're still going to be performing advisory duties within that AFSC, right? So Whatever your primary is, when you come to the unit, it's not like we strip that away, turn you into a ninja, and then point you at the enemy, right? That's, that's, <laughs> Which, that's not what we're doing. I mean, that's how you should market it. You, yeah. hey, it's, well, uh, maybe it's, that's another podcast. Just call it Jason Bourne School, and then everything yeah, will be fine. There we go. Every once in a while, we, we get some guys that, that think that's what it is, but uh, you know that, that notion gets kind of uh, run out of them pretty quick. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, going back to the well-rounded thing, um, when we go down range and we're working with our partners, those guys don't work for us, right? We have no authority over them, but we're trying to get them to do things, right? That, that maybe they don't want to do because they're, they're dangerous, different, whatever. Um, you know, if you, if you show up to the unit and you're uber fit, but you have that abrasive personality where people don't really want to listen to you, they don't want to be around you, you're not going to get very far, right? Um, you know, conversely, if you have a very gregarious personality and you're always joking around and people love being around you, but when it's time to flip the switch into work mode, you're, you're so gregarious that nobody takes you serious. Sure. That doesn't really work. Either. Well, and I imagine that word gets around pretty quick. I can't imagine the career field is very big. Like how many, how many CAAs no. are out there? So it's, it's tiny. Um, so there, there's only two squadrons that CAAs reside in, right? The, the six special operations squadron is the, the active duty squadron. And then our partners on the reserve side are the seven eleven. Um, and the, the really cool thing about that relationship is we actually share a building on Duke field. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and when one of our OADs, our operational aviation detachments goes down range, 99.99% of the time, those teams are comprised of a mix of, of active duty and reserve CAAs. Oh, okay. So we, we, we work shoulder to shoulder day in and day out. That's awesome. So Everybody out there that listens to the podcast that's actually in right now, because we actually do have a, a pretty large contingent that are active duty Air Force, and you know they're listening for for this stuff. Um, how how do they even start the process? Is it is it an email to an org box? Is it somebody that they, do they need to go to you direct? Like how do they get it going? Yeah, so the the easiest way to go about this is and break out your pins because it's, it's kind of a crazy email address. <laughs> we'll link it. We'll make sure to link it <laughs> yeah. on YouTube and stuff. It's uh, it's four nine two. SOW.CAA.recruiting at us.af.mil. Okay, you guys got to clean that so, up. This is just a marketing thing, but that's too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, and it, that's actually the, the second org box. So, we, we, have, uh, we have some recruiting materials that are out there in the wild um, that are a little bit outdated, right? So, the old address said dot hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're subscribers email that it's going to auto reply saying, Hey, we're not looking at this anymore. Email the recruiting box. So if you got, if you got one of our business cards or flyers or whatever, you can still hit that thing and it's going to give you the new address. Now what the new address is going to do once you hit that is it's going to auto reply with two things. It's going to give you the most current application package. And then it's also going to give you a, kind of a, a frequently asked questions and, and our responses to those, because, you know, I've, I've been in the, the recruiting cell for about a year and a half now. And there were, there were common questions, right? Obviously. Oh yeah. Uh, Listen, we know about common questions, playboy. You should see our DMS yeah. where it's like now, now yeah. the first question we ask is like, did you listen to episode 48? Did you listen right. to episode 26? So, and, and I mean, just kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, I, what folks don't understand, and, and, and I don't blame them, there's no way they could know this, but the recruiting office is, there's three of us in there, and we're still operational. You know, we're, oh, wow. we're still deploying. Um, so, 
if you hit that org box, we, we've set up those auto replies. And if, if we look at that email and it's something that's been addressed in the frequently asked questions, we're not going to give you a personal response, most likely. Okay. If we look at that question, it's like, okay, this is new and different. We, we haven't addressed that before. We're going to get back to you with a, with a personal response, right? Just know that we, we do read all those emails, but the, the volume of traffic we get in there and all of our actual operational duties, there's just no way we can, we can keep up with all that. Sure. Um, does the frequently asked questions have stuff like, I assume that there is a selection, uh, so does it have stuff like, Hey, here's how you get through it. Like what, what does that, what does that piece look like? Right. So selection, uh, we, we did have assessment and selection up until a few months ago. Um, you know, and I, I, not too long ago, I was, I was watching, uh, you guys, this episode with chief Cox and, you know, he, I'm, I'm actually a little bit bummed that you guys had him on before I got a chance to get on here because he touched on a lot of things and I'm like, Oh man, he, he stole my thunder. <laughs> um, so, so with the, uh, with the assessment and selection thing, um, you know, we, we had a, we had a good program that as we kind of transitioned from the AFSOC we needed to the AFSOC we will need, right. AFSOC and, and really the DOD writ large is, is kind of making this pivot to great power competition. Oh yeah. Um, you know, they took a, they took a hard look at our assessment and selection program and it was good for the old way of doing business, but moving forward, we needed to pivot to a more developmental, uh, kind of model similar to a lot of the things that, that special warfare is doing where, you know, with the old A and S process, um, you know, Chief Cox talked about the the buy versus build, right? Um, the old ANS process was very much a buy type scenario, right? We would put guys through a grinder for about six days, um, and then at the end of it, we would we would decide, like, hey, you, we we like what we saw, or, or hey, like, you know, we don't think you're a good fit here. It doesn't mean they're not a good airman, they're not professional, anything like that. Um, we were just looking for some very, very specific things. Um, moving forward, the way the process works is if you are an enlisted airman, you're going to go on AMS, dive down into Equal Plus, look for your AFSC, and then find the Equal Plus ad for your AFSC. You're going to volunteer there. You're going to email us at that crazy org box that you guys don't like the address for. <laughs> Uh, again, I, just anybody, plug it. Does anybody know? <laughs> yeah, don't, don't put <laughs> no, Brian no. into this box. I was the one that said I didn't <laughs> like it, so I own that, I own that um, one. It's just bad. Yeah, so so you're going to volunteer on Equal Plus, and then you're going to shoot us an email, fill out that application package, and then fire it back to us. Um, what we do with that application at that point is we're going to vet it for the basic requirements, right? Is your you know your Air Force PT scores high enough? Do you have any UIF or Article 15 type things going on? Uh, assignment or deployment availability codes, things like that, right? Um, and then after that, if if you're the person that we think is going to be successful in the mission qualification course, and we have a billet for you, we're going to get you into the mission qualification course. 
And that's where they're going to build you into that CAA we need, right? Um, where things get a little bit wonky and a, and a little bit different is for officers, there is no application package, right? So they're going to go into a system called Talent Marketplace. Um, and the reason we don't need an application from officers is all the information we need to look at is available to us in Talent Marketplace. Okay? So it, it, it kind of cleans that up and makes it really easy. After that, it's kind of the same thing. Volunteer and talent marketplace. Uh, we work with AFPC to get you into the mission qualification course, and then we're off to the races. Um, so I've referenced the mission qualification course a couple of times here, but we haven't really dived into to what that is, right? Um, so the mission qualification course is down at Herbert Field. Uh, it's nine to 12 months long. Uh, and then like, as I, as we talk through it, I'll, I'll kind of illustrate why there's a, a kind of a gap in the length. Um, phase one is run at the U S air force special operations school. And it's five weeks of academics, right? And you're going to go through things like intro to soft, basically who's who in the zoo, right? Uh, you're going to go through, you're going to learn about the dynamics of international terrorism. Pretty cool course. Uh, contemporary insurgent warfare. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, some some really some really uh, broad brain food kind of things. Uh, cross cult cross cultural competency for soft. That's the one I was thinking of. Um, you know that, that's in my mind that's probably one of the most important things that we as advisors get exposed to because everything we do is cross cultural competency. Um, once you finish up phase one, you're going to roll into phase two, which is 12 weeks. And that's all your field skills. That's the fun stuff, right? So you're going to be out in the field, uh, learning how to shoot, move and communicate advanced weapons techniques, uh, that T triple C if you've never been exposed to it before. So tactical combat casualty care. Um, if you're, if you're an airman already in the air force, you've probably gone through SABC. T triple C is SABC on steroids, right? Um, you're going to learn tactical communications. You're going to learn how to operate tactical vehicles. You're going to learn combatives. Um, a lot of really fun stuff. You're going to go through, through that for 12 weeks. Then we're going to put you in phase three, which is language. Uh, language was all at the same time, like my most favorite and least favorite because you're going to be in there eight hours a day, just mentally getting beat down. Well, it's funny how those, those pipeline stories are all the same. Like I have schools yeah. too, like Sear for me, the very first time that I, you know, way back in 2002 or whenever, when I went through Sear, that was immediately one of my favorite courses and one of my least favorite courses. As soon as I graduated, I don't know what happened, but I was like, that course was actually awesome looking back at it. And somebody was like, oh, would you, yeah. would you go back through Sear? Absolutely not. No, pass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no way. I imagine, yeah, I imagine uh, languages like that for you. Like, it's rewarding and it was hard and it was good. But, you know, at the same time, it was still, you know, probably not the most fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's with language, that's kind of where the the pipeline starts to, to alter in length for different people, right? So, if you get assigned a cat one or cat two language, so something like Spanish or French, those are the, the shorter courses and that runs for four months, right? If you get a cat three or four language, 
So something like uh, Thai, Tagalog, um, Polish, you name it, that's more like a six-month course. So you're, you're going to be in there for a while. Um, you know, and, and the thing that I kind of like to, to kind of keep my motivation levels up, I guess, um, you know, when I'd have a bad day in language, I, I just have to sit back and it's, it's a matter of perspective, I guess. You know, who, who else in the Air Force or the DOD gets to learn a language that isn't a linguist? You know, yeah, very, um, I mean, that's very few people. Very, like, yeah. I mean, literally getting paid to learn. And that's how I felt through, throughout PA school. And yeah. they're paying me to do this, even though it sucks and it's taking up all my time. Other people are taking <laughs> out loans for this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and for us, because we're in language coded billets in the squadron, when you finish up, if you test out high enough, you get paid extra. So that's so, a bit. So one of the other things that I really wanted to, to cover about the pipeline is, uh, you know, you're talking about the build process rather than the buy process and, and none of the selection things. So is there any uh, really difficult part? I know language like you're talking about is difficult, but where do people normally fail out and what's the success rate like of, you know, I'm going to cross over, bite the bullet, do all this thing, enter the package. Where do I end up? How many people make it? How many people don't? So, you know, it's kind of hard to say what it's going to look like moving forward because again, we're, we're kind of going through a transition from the old process to that, that build process. And we haven't really run an iteration of that yet. Historically under the old ANS process, because we threw up that, you know, kind of that wrought iron door at the, at the front end and only let a few people through the success rate was pretty much a hundred percent moving forward because we're, we're kind of buying a little bit more risk in people and, and bringing them in and letting them rise to the challenge, which I think is the right way to do it. Um, but only time will tell what that's going to look like by the end of the pipeline. Um, you know, and, and as far as the most challenging aspects of the pipeline, it kind of depends on what AFSC you're coming from. You know, because like I said, we, we've got six different officer AFSCs and we have 14 different enlisted AFSCs. Um, just, just being brutally honest, um, there are certain AFSCs in the, in the Air Force that are kind of built to inherently go out, shoot, move, communicate, and do these type of things. There are other AFSCs that inherently their job is in an office or in a shop. So... You, you take those guys from the latter AFSCs and you put them in a field environment. It's kind of like, Oh, nothing has prepared me for this. Right. Yeah. You know, it, what, it's what your, do I do? It's your first time doing anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the pipeline is not built to fail people out, e even moving forward. It's not built to fail people out. We, we need CAAs. We need to grow the community. And, you know, honestly, we, we've always got guys PCS and retire and whatever. So we have to backfill them as well. So if we set up some kind of crazy pipeline where it's just like, you know, thou shalt not pass, the community is going to die. And, and AFSOC and, and us, we, we can't afford that. Okay. And so in total, once a person goes through all the MQT stuff, like we were talking about the language thing and everything, how long is the entire pipeline from the time you get an accepted step in the door until you start getting that beret? 
so let me let me back up just a little bit because we we've still got one more phase that's phase four um and, and we'll, we'll just touch on that really briefly because once you get out of language and you go to phase four it's kind of a free-for-all right so what happens there is we're going to send you to any school that we need you to have for your afsc to be fully qualified as a combat aviation advisor okay so that might be, you know, if, if you're a, again, I'll just use my own AFSC as an example. If you come to us and you haven't been through SEER, if you haven't been through SV80, we're going to send you through that. You have to have that period dot. Um, if you are a, uh, you know, if you're trying to think of a good example, a, a maintainer is another good example. So if you don't have your airframe and power plant license, we're going to send you to an FAA school to get your airframe and power plant license, right? Because we need you to have that downrange. Um, so it's things like that. And in, in phase four, like I said, because it's, it's kind of all over the place, it's impossible to really give somebody a, a timeline on how long that's going to last. Okay. Now to circle back to your question. Um, so once you finish all four phases, you're going to PCA, from Herbert Field to Duke Field, um, it's it's a local area booth, and that's going to start your clock, right? So a tour at the 6SOS is a minimum four-year tour, and that's because of all the training we put you through on the front end. So we're going to hang on to you for at least four years. Uh, you get to the unit, and you've been awarded your beret provisionary, provisionally. Sorry, English is... It's tough today. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's not your only language, so you're fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, once you finish up MQC, they provisionally award that beret. I mean, and what that means is it's kind of a loner, right? So your, your job at that point is to get to the squadron. Um, there's a few other kind of like OJT type things that you need to knock out at the squadron. And they're going to line you up for what's called a supervised deployment. Okay. Now, what a supervised deployment looks like is you're going to be made a member of a OAD, an operational aviation detachment that has been tasked with a real world mission, right? And you're going to deploy with them, but you're under the supervision of a senior member on that team. Ideally, it's going to be somebody in your AFSC, but that's not always the case. You know, my my very first trip as a CAA, my supervised, the guy giving me my supervised was uh, security forces, you know. Um, so he, he kind of sat in on some of my AFE-centric classes, and I, I'd, I'd look at him in the back there, and his eyes were just glazed over because... <laughs> He's doing his best you know, to stay away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but really what he was looking at is kind of instructor, advisor technique, things like that. So your supervised deployment is kind of a kind of a check ride, right? It, it is a learning process. You're not expected to to kind of sink or swim, um, but you're really being evaluated on how well you picked up and internalized all those skills that were dropped on you during the mission qualification course. Okay, so you get to the end of your supervised deployment. Whoever's doing your supervised kind of gives you the the go or no go. And at that point, the award of the beret becomes permanent. So 
PJs have the maroon beret. Controllers have a scarlet beret. And then uh, you, you guys have a brown beret, right? So I've heard that there is some uh, talk about it, the president slipping some kind of a note or something like that, or someone slipping the president a note, and then he made it happen, and you guys have the brown berets. Any truth to that? And what does the brown signify? Uh, on the first part, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <clears throat> I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, if you guys want the full story, you're going to have to put in an application. Come to the unit. We'll go from there. Perfect. <clears throat> uh, on the second part, so the yes, we do have a brown ring. Um, what that brown is, what that brown signifies is fertile soil, right? So we, as advisors, take that as a reminder that everywhere we go, there's fertile soil. If we look hard enough, right. There's opportunity everywhere we go and we need to capitalize on that opportunity. Right. Um, the cloth flash harkens back to project nine, which is kind of the predecessor of the air commandos. Right. So that goes back to world war II history. And then we have a metal beret device with, uh, you know, the, the wings and the, the downward facing dagger and the, the lightning bolts. And that just to sum it up briefly, that, that kind of symbolizes the, the application of special operations, air, air power. Awesome. Um, so just going back to some of the stuff that you guys do as far as um, training at home, I know you talked a little bit about like your first deployment and everything, but I just want to get into, cause we always, have to know and everyone that is listening has to know what people do when they're actually at home station i know obviously with the pjs and stuff we're doing a lot of training and we're doing our thing but what do you guys do are you guys just sitting around talking in your foreign languages and those kind of groups or you guys <laughs> there's some of that there's some of that going on just yeah. to keep fresh and that kind of thing i imagine you know and then uh you know at home and then deployed i know we talked a little bit about that but uh mostly at home what kind of things do you do yeah, so home station life, you know, the the day to day, that's probably the most frequent question we get, and it's also the hardest to answer because there's really no such thing as a typical day at home station. Um, no matter you know, what you say, no matter how many times you say that, our listeners are not going to believe you, and it's going to yeah. be it's going to be one of those frequently asked questions. I'm really upset that Trent isn't here to take this because it's his like it's his bugaboo <laughs> question. Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> it's great because awesome. people always ask Trent. They're like well, what do you guys do when you're not deployed? And he gets so upset about it. It's great. <laughs> Taking on a life of its own. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's, <clears throat> we're still a United States Air Force squadron, right? And, and what I mean by that is we have shops and offices and programs just like every other squadron, right? It's, it's, it's mandatory. It's stuff we have to do. So yes, there is admin work that has to get done. Um, but that also doesn't necessarily mean you're chained to a desk if you're at home station. There are frequent training opportunities that arise and, you know, they're usually AFSC agnostic. So, you know, I, I'll give you an example that, that I use frequently because it's, it's one of the ones where I had the most fun. Um, you know, I had several years ago, I had the opportunity to go up to Montana and work with, uh, you know, a retired PJ from the, the two, two, four. Rod Olney, uh, you went to the yeah. peak. You can drop his name. He's a friend. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't good. We, we love the peak. Free here. advertisement. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, no, we I love, love Rod. It. He's awesome. Um, so 
we went up there and we did a three week package where the first week we did uh, whitewater rescue. The second week we did high angle rescue. And then the third week we went and climbed the mountain. And while while we were on the mountain, we had one of our organic aircraft uh, come up and, and airdrop supplies to us just to see if we could get it done, you know? So, you know, I, I just, I, I, I trot that story out every time. And then I, I kind of circle back to the fact that I'm an AFE guy, right? So a lot of these AFSCs that are traditionally support AFSCs, right? It's awesome being in a special tactics squadron. It's awesome being in some of these other units. And there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when you come from one of these support AFSCs and you come to the combat aviation advisor community, you're, you're a quote unquote, and I, I really don't like this term, but an operator, just like everybody else on the team, Yeah, you know, you go from supporting uh, to support Ed, like you are the, right. you're the action arm of that. You're the direct action arm of that squadron. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, as a, as a AFE guy showing up in Montana and it was September. So, you know, for, for me as a Beautiful. Florida boy, it's cold. And we're, and we're, <laughs> it's it's we're not that standing, cold in Butte in September. <clears throat> Oh man, I've been in Florida too long. <laughs> um, so we're we're standing on the banks of this river, and the uh, the instructors are like, "Okay, hey, these uh, these rapids are rated one through six. This is a uh, a category five. Jump in. Ooh, get it. Have fun. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like me. <laughs> me? Yeah. Like, yeah. Get in the water. You know, and we, and we spent a week doing that. And at the end of it, you know, um, you're one, it's, it's an amazing skill set. You know, anytime you get to do something like that, but it builds your confidence too, right? Even if it's not necessarily specifically water stuff, when you, when you kind of put yourself out there and, and intentionally expose yourself to things that are outside your comfort zone, man, it, it just, it builds your confidence massively. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I 100%. 100% know exactly what that's like. And you kind of, you kind of touched on it at the end, but you mentioned that at the end of this week, you actually had organic aircraft that dropped you guys off. So that's another really, really cool part of the job. What kind of aircraft do you guys get to work with? So the, I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way, but I'm going to throw in some stuff you didn't ask. Ooh, perfect. Front. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so one of the other interesting things about what we do and how we do it is, yes, we have aircraft that home stationed organic to the squadron. They don't deploy. We don't take those downrange. When we deploy as an OAD, that OAD is the weapon system, right? So we go downrange as a, as a team of 12 to 16 combat aviation advisors, and the aircraft that we're flying are the aircraft that are owned and operated by our foreign partners, Okay. okay. So to get back to your question specifically, um, personally, I've worked with uh, C-208s that are armed with Hellfires. I've worked with, uh, so it's a Cessna that, that's armed. Um, I've worked with uh, AT-802s, which is literally a crop duster that they started hanging bombs on. Really <laughs> cool a, airplane. That, that yeah, does not sound right. safe. At all. Oh, man. It's amazing. It's maybe not safe, but it is awesome. All your crops are destroying, yeah. Um, 
you know, I've, I've worked with, uh, one of my favorites is the, uh, the AU 23, um, which is a Vietnam era aircraft that was developed here at Eglin air force base. The United States air force decided, Hey, this, this isn't going to do what we needed to do. And they handed it off to one of our foreign partners back then who are operating it to this day. So, you know, we, we go out there and we get to, to play with this old tail dragger that you can hang guns and ISR sensor suites and all kinds of fun stuff on. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, and, and for our air crew guys, the way that works is, you know, we're going to keep you current and qualified in one of the currently two aircraft that we have at home station. Uh, but when it's time to deploy, we know ahead of time what type of aircraft we're going to be working with. And we will find somebody stateside and we'll lease their aircraft. We'll rent it, whatever we need to do. And we'll go get you spun up and we'll get all of our CAA spun up in operating and supporting that aircraft prior to us going down range. That way we can show up qualified and ready to rock and roll with that specific airframe. Man, that's, that's awesome. Just hearing you talk and hearing, hearing some of the things that you guys are, are leading the way in, by the way. So you know, me back to ST after my instructor time, I've had to kind of reorient myself about where is AFSOC going and what are we doing? And I, I, again, I'm an early adopter. I've, I've said this a million times. I'm one of those guys that gets right, right on, you know, the leading edge of these things. And I'm like, Hey, I I think this is awesome capability. And of course you, you always internalize a little bit. And I thought to myself a bunch of times these past two or three years, wow, we're, we are really leading the way. I think that's wrong. I think you guys are leading the way in this new in this new AFSOC push. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of capability that you guys have that people absolutely have not heard about. That is absolutely wild to me. Yeah. The the tough thing is, you know, as far as getting the word out is we're a really small community and we stay really busy. You know, so even if you're not downrange, um, you know, we're typically training on something. Yeah. And we're also, because we try to maintain such a small footprint when we're downrange, we're not necessarily taking public affairs or combat camera. You know, absolutely nothing against those guys. But one of our biggest, um, one of our biggest assets when it comes to our palatability in a, in a kind of a cultural and a political viewpoint is the fact that we're, we're pretty small and, and low visibility mm-hmm. when we're in the operating environment. Right. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then to, to kind of layer on top of that, you know, we, we're AFSOC, you know, we, we kind of try to pride ourselves and, and hold ourselves to the standard of being a, a quiet professional. Right. Um, you know, which, kind of makes it difficult to to get on a podcast and, and talk about <laughs> these things because it's yeah. it kind of runs counter to uh to the way we typically do things right but if you don't get out there i mean it's people right. are gonna know you know yeah absolutely. absolutely absolutely people need to know about it especially for the recruiting efforts so speaking of that we get i get this question all the time about um pararescue specifically um and we, I don't think we've touched on it yet so far, but how long is a person expected to be gone as far as deployments? And then also, you know, TDY, cause there's 
obviously if you've been in the air force for a minute guys have families and that kind of thing so i know that they're considering that aspect of it if they want to go into this kind of job yeah so um i've i've been in the community long enough to see us go from a one-to-one dwell to the current one-to-two dwell and just to explain to folks what that means is dwell is for every day that you're gone you're at home station for one day right so if you're on a one-to-one dwell that means if you go out on a 45-day deployment you're going to be at home for 45 days before you're able to deploy again doesn't necessarily mean that's they're going to have to clock and you're out the door um but typically when we're at a one-to-one dwell that means that there's a lot of stuff going on and you're, you're going to be turning and burning a lot okay we're not doing that right now we haven't been doing that for a while so we're on a one to two dwell so we we have different types of deployments um you know we have persistence and we have episodics if you're doing a rotation on a persistent you're typically looking at about 120 days right which means you're going to come home and you're going to be home for 240 days before we can deploy you again it's not too terribly bad right? Um, the episodics are shorter in duration, but they can be anywhere between 30 and 90 days, right? Um, like I said, we do stay busy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. I've been married for 20 years and my wife has put up with this for so long. So, um, you know, family life is possible doing this job. Um, but I will say just from a personal point of view, like when, when you're home, you need to be home, you know, focus your energy and your time on your family. You know, it's super important. Absolutely. That's the same thing that we tell everyone is, you know, you can either be home and then not do anything like these cool jobs we're talking about, or you, you got to at some point sacrifice and bite the bullet and say, Hey, uh, we, I would just you know, want to further my career. And I feel like I need to do something to, uh, a little bit different and I'm going to be gone for a while. And you need to figure out, you know, how you can take care of your family. And especially when you're home, you have to spend as much time with them as you can possibly do and let them know that you care about them. Um, so all in all, I know there's a lot of things that were covered here and a lot of different mission aspects that we uh, typically talk about on the podcast. And that's kind of why we brought you on just to open everyone's eyes to just talk about uh, some of the things that you guys are doing because you're a unique squadron um, within the Air Force. A lot of people didn't know that there were any Brown Berets to begin with. So, um, you know, all in all, I, I kind of want to just wrap it up and see um, if this kind of flows with what you're thinking as far as like the short, succinct type of answer that you would give to somebody like, you know, two sentences, a couple sentences, like this is exactly what the SOS does in a nutshell. How would you kind of frame that? Uh, so <clears throat> I'm going to try to, to recite this and not butcher it too, too badly. <laughs> oh, mission um, statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, So combat aviation advisors are air commandos responsible for the conduct of aviation and surface and air integration focused for internal defense, security force assistance, and unconventional warfare. And we do these things by, with, and through our foreign partners. Bam. 
nailed it. Crushed so it. basically, yeah, uh, I'm going to show up at the unit and get punched in the face. Right? <laughs> you did terrible. <laughs> Like, obviously you guys aren't, are not special forces or anything like that. I don't want anybody to get misconstrued about that kind of thing, but you take a lot of the concepts from what they have been doing as far as language and then using the foreign internal defense and the other missions that you guys do, the subsets, um, to help grow. And then you take a bunch of career fields, put them together and you push them forward to help teach our partner nations, the things that they need to know about, um, you know, how to protect themselves, you know, foreign internal defense and that kind of stuff. So, um, Overall, how would you say that people could get back to you again if you can repeat that stuff so they can get yeah. to you and figure out the information and then where can they find uh, any more information if there's a website or anything like that? Yeah, so like I said, the, the best way to get more information uh, is to hit us at that org box and it is 492sow.caa.recruiting at us.af.mil. Uh, we're, we're working on a couple other social media things to try to get this out into the public eye a little bit more, but right now that's the most reliable way to get a hold of us. Okay. And one last question that we always ask everybody that uh, is talking about any of the career fields is if a person wanted to get into your specific career field, what piece of advice would you have for them either, you know, before they get in the air force or for those people that are in the air force already, what advice would you have for them? You know, every, every day you should be pushing yourself either you know, mentally, physically, or spiritually a little bit outside your comfort zone. Um, you know, kind of like Chief Cox said in the Mental Armor episode, challenge your fears, you know, attack your fears. Um, you know, I think that creates a, a more confident, well-rounded person, and that's what we need. And if it goes wrong, I was never here. <laughs> and Aaron told you to do it. And I told you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds completely correct for my end, my friend. <laughs> well, we seriously appreciate you coming on and talking about this uh, career field. It does seem like a pretty awesome, and there's a lot of opportunities, and it's continuing to kind of form its shape and make its uh, footprint around the world and the things that you guys are doing. Um, but I think, you know, it fits well. Obviously, you've been there for a while, and we talked about how you kind of uh, tried to figure out which path you wanted to go. And it sounds like for those people who are doing a career field, they like the career field and they like the job and everything, but they're not sure if they like the exact uh, mission set or staying home, that kind of stuff. It sounds like this is a good opportunity for those people. Or even if you want to just go in and learn language and travel a lot and meet a lot of different people. I mean, just to be able to grow from those cultural experiences and then those trips, like training trips like you were talking about and just push yourself a little bit further than, you know, just the normal, uh, you know, life support person that sits at home, obviously they're needing everything not to put them down or anything like that. But, um, there is a place for everybody in the air force to do their kind of thing. But if you wanted to step outside of the traditional aspects of your job and just get out of your comfort zone. This is a, a good opportunity to go travel around the world and be able to do things just like you were able to do. Um, so we appreciate you just coming around and talking to us on the podcast and team room um, for you guys out there listening. Like you said, we'll put the uh, YouTube uh, on the YouTube. We'll put the link to that uh, website and the email address that he put out on the bottom. So you can go over there and check it out. 
and make sure you hit them up if you guys have any questions um you guys can always just hit us up as well and we'll get you in touch with that person thank you again for listening and for subscribing we seriously appreciate you guys and everything that you do for us and we'll continue to do everything we can to help you guys out and figure out which career field um, is out there but again you're not going to regret any of these career fields that you go and join because at the end of the day it's all about getting that experience and getting these people around you that are motivated just like you are so hit us up anytime and we'll see you next time Best. Let it play. Train hard. Thanks, Justin.